Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here as always with the brilliant Tina Spring. And today we are very fortunate to have Laura Gaylord, who is a veterinarian and a board-certified veterinary nutritionalist. So we have uh, great questions ahead of for her on uh, pet nutrition, as well as we are very excited that she was introduced to us by uh, Ryan Yamka, who's been on uh, Your Family Dog, and we certainly think that if he thinks she's wonderful, we are going to think she's wonderful too. She um, has a very special interest in homemade diet formulation, whole foods, sports nutrition, wellness, and integrative medicine, senior care, Western veterinary herbal therapies, and supplements to support optimal health. She's a full veterinarian and a specialist in nutrition, which there's not very many, I don't think, in this country. So yay, she has a company called Whole Pet Provisions, where she does online consultations with people and with you and your veterinarian. And uh, we're hoping she'll talk to us a little bit about that. And with that, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gaylord. And Tina, you are up with the first question. Welcome to the Your Family Dog podcast, where we just add letters and odd pronunciations randomly to keep the listener <laughs> on their toes. So I believe you're a nutritionist. Not That's really correct. sure what a nutritionalist is. <laughs> and Ryan, I've heard that before. And, and Ryan Yamka probably loves the shout out. <laughs> Thank you. I love you. You're smart and pretty. Apparently I'm not. I may, I, I'm, not, no, I'm too no, old to be pretty. Just, and I'm pretty sure you just not, pointed out that I'm not smart. So it's not about being smart. It's that Ohio accent. That's what it is. To be fair, there broadcasters, are broadcasters, you know, house. they come from the Midwest because we have the clearest accent. So, you know, there you go. I can play both sides here because I grew up in Wisconsin, but now I live in the South. So right. <laughs> I have heard people say nutritionalist before, but it is, it is nutritionist. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, so we're, it's, we're really excited to have you here, Dr. Gaylord. So y'all we've been emailing with Dr. Gaylord for months because she's so busy. She doesn't have time for us. So we're really <laughs> grateful that she'll be here today and help us. So we were talking a little bit before we hit the record button that families sometimes get pinched a little bit between like the mass marketing that happens in the marketplace, but wanting to do really well by their animals and keep them healthy and feed them well. Like we talked about with um, Dr. Karen Becker, like having a very long life and then awfully ill and dead quickly, but having a good, long, healthy life. and maybe their veterinarian who doesn't have a ton of specialty in nutrition and is recommending things that maybe are contrary to what they read in other sourcing. So we're super excited to have you here because I think you're probably beautifully positioned where you can help families have a good idea on how to navigate all of that because nutrition becomes really controversial. So if you had a new family you were talking to who are like, we want to do it great, where do you have them begin? Well, we, we have a really good, honest discussion about maybe what their goals are and what they want to achieve, you know, with feeding, how they want to feed their pet, but also 
um, realistically what they can achieve in their home with their schedule, with their financial situation. I mean, all those things are relevant because, I mean, we do have a wide spectrum of food choices now. And I mean, I, through my nutrition consulting practice, I, I formulate a lot of homemade diets for clients and I love doing that. So I'm a little biased because that's one of my passions is to make that happen for people to give them that option. But I also understand that it's not practical for a lot of people as well. And maybe they need some kind of balance. And so I try to approach it non-judgmentally with them and say, look, let's let's talk about what options you have and what you want to achieve and what's doable for you. And maybe the compromise is some combination of things that we put together. And so I think that's all very possible. You know, we can do it a lot of different ways and still get really good results for our pets. I love that answer because I think mm-hmm. I know in behavior consulting, I do a lot of, we're going to screw it up a little bit better every time. Right. And if it's (laughs) low progress towards success that I can, I'll celebrate all that progress over perfection. I do think, especially for parents, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to do everything perfect. And that I just don't think that's reasonable. Like, I don't, I don't think that's attainable. So what's one simple thing families could do to improve their we're going to choose dogs because we're, we're a dog podcast, but to improve their dog's nutrition. Well, so I think there, you know, there is a big move towards trying to include more of like fresh food forms in their diet and maybe more variety as well. And I, I think, you know, key steps there are maybe starting with that mindset when they're young. And, and if you've had a dog, what I tend to see sometimes is dogs will come to me when they're later in life and they've already got their laundry list of medical issues. And, you know, then we're kind of picking diets based on what they can tolerate best, um, but also addresses their medical needs. But I really love getting people when they're not old and already have diseases. Maybe we start to get them when they're younger so we can set them up as best we can and maybe train them so they can tolerate a little variety and change over time. Because I definitely have some patients that need to stick with one single thing all the time or they can't keep themselves in balance. So I, I think we've created that problem potentially with some of them by feeding them one specific way their whole lives. So you know, that the push is to, to really look at the fresh food market. I mean, it's a the largest segment of pet food that's growing right now. Um, so there's a lot of excitement about that. I think there's some pushback from the traditional companies on that's not really better. You don't have scientific evidence for that. And but there there are people working on that, looking at processing effects in dog foods and um, what are health benefits with fresh food versus commercial processed foods. So um, lots lots of exciting stuff going on, and we should have more information hopefully in the next five plus years. But we can't wait for that, right? We got to do stuff now <laughs> with well, our pets. And, so and to a certain extent, I don't think it takes a PhD to know that hot dogs two meals a day or cereal, two meals a day for every day of our lives is not going to be the best route to ideal health, right? Like I think we can easily look at the quality of ingredients going in and go, okay, well, we could just do better than the basement of quality. Right. I think, you know, ingredient lists are exceedingly hard to interpret now, and I'm sure you all know this too, that there's so much manipulation that goes on into what it turns out to say. So you don't really quite know, 
you know, what chicken means because there's so many versions of chicken that it could be really good quality chicken. It could be really poor quality chicken with all kinds of stuff blended in and it's still allowed to be called chicken. So you lose control of that, you know, in food forms with, and there's a lack of transparency a lot of times with pet food companies and labeling. Um, So that does happen. Um, I, I can tell you the defense that I've already heard about that coming up is that processing effects or highly using terms like more processed doesn't apply directly to pet foods because that's a, it conjures up images in our head of um, corn, you know, chips and snacks and unhealthy human foods. And that's not what pet food is supposed to be in their minds. And, you know, commercial pet food is supposed to be complete and balanced and derives all nutrition. And these are the defenses I'm starting to hear against that movement, which is interesting um, because I, I tend to feel like all of us by default understand that fresh food, unprocessed food should be better for us. And that's what I look forward to, perhaps, is seeing those that kind of work, that research get out there. One of the things that I find kind of interesting is that in so many of the other animals in our lives, such as horses or goats or cows or whatever, you know, when when we had horses, we were talking about, you know, feeding them, getting them onto grass, you know, food that is appropriate, fresh food that's appropriate for them. And it's like, if we know that about horses, why is it suddenly when we turn to the longest domesticated animal who's closest to us, that suddenly giving them dry chunks of, of highly processed food is considered to be better than giving him something that's that's fresh and we know the genuine nutrition of. I think that people are beginning to sort of take that step back and go, holy cow. I think especially since if you take a look at the longevity of our dogs, you know, back in the in the 40s when dogs were eating, you know, scraps from tables and these dogs were living a lot longer. And I think people are like, what's going on? What's the big shift? And so I think that's one reason why nutrition is sort of coming to the forefront. I think many people are starting to go, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, we really ate differently, right? We got locally sourced food that was fresher and cleaner and not necessarily from big giant conglomerates, right? We weren't, we were eating better too. So being able to provide a, a balanced plate for a dog was probably a lot easier than it is for some families today. Yeah, very true. I mean, just the the multiplication of highly processed foods that we live with is astounding. And we're suffering because of that in our diets as well. So it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think the, the success of dog food has become really because of the convenience factor. And I, I think even for me, what I deal with is I have a lot of people will come in with good intentions and then they realize it is a, it is work to put together your dog's food and, and to do it and not everybody can achieve it. So, you know, that that's where the balance lies is, um, you know, you do sacrifice the convenience of just keeping it in a closet and pouring it in a bowl and you're done. Um, but if you want to do better, you have to think about how you're going to put that in your life and make time for it to make that happen. Oh, I think you're so right. I, it's funny we should happen to have you on today because yesterday was my grocery shop and make the dogs meatballs day. And so I went to the grocery store probably around 11, 12 o'clock. I was done making all these meatballs that include all kinds of fresh vegetables and so on and so forth. I wrapped up around 4.30. So, I mean, it was basically yep. four and a half hours. Now, those the, the the number of meatballs I made will last for a good 
two weeks or so. But nonetheless, I knew that I had to commit an entire afternoon to that. And right. tomorrow afternoon, it's making the chicken slurry that I put on their food in the morning. They get meatballs at night and chicken stuff in the morning. And so that's another, and I've got to go get my chicken livers today. But I've just decided that, you know, I've sort of dedicated myself to that. And I am fortunate that I had the time to be able to do that. And the the willingness, I, I know that for a lot of my clients, they're very busy. I mean, families are busy these days. And mom simply doesn't, mom or dad, but I've got to say most of the time it's going to be mom, does not have the time to make a full fresh dinner for their family, much less devote, you know, four or six sure. hours a week to cooking for the dogs. Right. Well, and this is why, you know, Dr. Yamka's uh, <laughs> proliferation of fresh food diets has a come come across. I call him doctor because he's PhD, you know, but he um, he's speaking to a need that, you know, a lot of fresh pet company, fresh diet companies are, are multiplying to meet that kind of need. Cost is still an investment for those foods. You know, we definitely see that they cost a bit more. Uh, but, it, you know, I think over time, I hope that we can make that more affordable for people. And I think the more that's out there, the more competitive it becomes and the, all the processing and the shipping and all those kinks maybe get managed as best we can. We're also seeing air dried and freeze dried versions of foods. I'm really excited about the freeze dried versions that are coming out. Uh, so that that could be another kind of comp. It's some compromise, but it gives you some convenience and uh, you know shelf stability and all that. So the the goal the real goal here should be just how can we how can we push food science forward to make it better? You know, that's I I think I talked to clients about similar to like people had a high demand um, over these past 10 years for plant-based milks and at first it was like rejection, everything's dairy 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 and then what happened was the, the the dairy producers making milks decided, well, let's use our technology and start making plant-based milks. And what happened, like at least a third of the grocery store now has all these plant-based milk options. Well, that's what could happen too with pet food. If we use the technology we already know we have in place and make better food should be the goal. Well, in my experiences, most families want to do better, right? They don't have the wherewithal to cook for their dog every day, especially yep especially if they have multiple animals, right? A busy family, but they don't mind cooking and freezing and adding that to a decent base that is convenient. And that if it gets busy or everybody gets the flu, they don't feel bad feeding the dog the thing that they're feeding them as a base. Right, right. So can we talk a little bit about the, is it copper? I might be pronouncing it wrong. Potentate? That, that's been real controversial. I know Whole Dog Journal's done a bunch of articles on it about copper in dog foods and yep. about that. Okay. So, yeah. The discussion is that um, over the past several years that we've seen a rise in copper storage hepatopathy in dogs. So we don't know if this is um, because we're doing more biopsies and we're finding it. We don't think that's the case, but there have been more, you know, dogs are getting better medical care than they ever have. So one argument is we're doing more biopsies. We're seeing, we're, we're picking it up more often, um, whereas it could have been lingering there. But also that's probably not the case because we think that environmentally copper has been rising in the environment. So what happens is you have animals on pasture, we have potentially environmental runoff that happens with our, you know, development of societies and cows grazing 
pasture land might take in more copper and concentrate it in organs, especially the liver. And that ends up in pet foods indirectly at some point. And so that's one source is that our ingredients going into the pet food might have more and more copper. That's a getting in there. Okay. But what also happened is that several years ago, they switched over the type of copper supplementation form that they were using. So it used to be an oxide form, which is not as bioavailable to now we use very bioavailable types of supplements and pet foods, and those are going to be absorbed better. And so What's happened is we think that is making it more absorbable. So dogs are getting more in. And then in some cases, probably there are dogs that are genetically better at absorbing it and maybe not as good as at eliminating it. And they might start to accumulate this. And there's definitely some breeds that are genetically prone to to copper storage hepatopathies. And they they are thought to actually have a defect in how they uh, excrete and eliminate copper from the liver. So that would be our like Labrador retrievers, our Bedlington Terriers, um, some of those breeds. But so what's happening now is the discussion is how do we manage that, right? We want to protect them from the food ingredients, maybe having more than we expect. And also maybe what is the best way to supplement. And so there's a minimum requirement for pet foods, you know, higher requirement for growth for copper, a lower requirement for adult maintenance. Some companies use the same premix for both their growth and their adult diets. So what that means is that they're going to be eating the growth level on every food that they consume, or they might be eating an all life stages diet, which is basically a growth diet because it has to meet those requirements. So if they're always consuming the high level of copper, then that's probably not ideal either. Uh, But then if our food ingredients are coming in with more copper than we expected based on formulations that were done a long time ago, and if a company's not testing their ingredients coming in, they may have more actual copper in the diet than they expect because they're not accounting for that. So testing the food after it's produced is where you would catch that. So if they do a total nutritional analysis on the diet at the, you know, in the bag, basically to find out what's in it, they, they might see they have more copper than they thought they did. Um, so that might be way to, one way to catch it. So there is discussion about creating a safe upper limit for copper. And so, you know, nutritionists and the pet food industry are are actively sort of discussing this now. Feeding study would help too, wouldn't it, in theory, because they can see what's in the bag or in the container and what is getting excreted from the dog and know what is while in a laboratory, it might say that it's biologically available, a dog might have a different opinion and not read the manual. So right. being able to see what is what is an animal actually absorbing and excreting. Sure. I mean, that is helpful information. But keep in mind that copper storage hepatopathy is something that happens over months and years of a dog's life. And I don't think we're going to have studies that go that far. Like we're not going to have, it's so expensive to do a feeding trial. um, And then to have a study that goes out two, three, four years is just not going to happen. So I I think that's where we're, you know, it's not the one or two year old dogs that are being diagnosed with copper storage disease. It's more the middle age and senior dogs that we start to see those liver enzymes go up. And then if they get worked up to that point, we find that out. So, yeah, and I think also part of that discussion is do we lower the minimum requirement for copper, but lowering the minimum is not going to fix an excess, right? I mean, because they're, you know, and if they're still using one premix for growth and 
the rest of their diets, then you're going to have on the average, a higher level coming in from that food all the time. So what are some yeah, of the symptoms in- that an owner would be looking for that might indicate to them that their dog is having problems with copper? Yeah, unfortunately, this is one of these diseases that really has no symptoms until it's way maybe too, you know too advanced. So they may have liver enzyme elevations that get picked up on t- on screening. So these would be the dogs with that high ALT that we have no symptoms at all. Maybe that's that does not mean all of them have copper storage disease, but persistently high liver enzymes that don't go away or don't go get better. And if they are worked up, you know, eventually they'll have to have a liver biopsy. And that's only the only way to diagnose copper storage disease is to get a biopsy. Is there a treatment for it? Usually, um, depending on the level, if it's high, they will put them on chelator medications that will bind and remove it. And then they are on a copper restricted diet pretty much for the rest of their life after that. So it sounds as though dog food companies are, are putting copper in because it's a required nutrient for dogs. Right. If you are sitting on like doing a mix, for example, what I do is I use a freeze dried food as their base and then my dogs get all kinds of supplements to go with it, including a, a multiple vitamin and they get, um, you know, these meatballs and they make it all kind of vegetables and stuff like that. If you were doing a home cooked or a supplemental kind of thing. Should you be worried about copper sources in your homemade foods? Well, when we formulate with homemade diets, we still have copper in the supplement because we we know there there you know copper is an essential nutrient. You have to meet the requirement. It does have functions and red blood cell function, you know, structural tissues in the body. So copper deficiency is a concern if there's, you know, a lack of copper. Um, it's hard because I think, you know, if you're feeding a lot of tissues or organ meats, those would be the ones that we think of most often as being potentially rich sources of copper. In fact, when we make diets or formulate diets, they're putting liver in for that purpose a lot of times to get those minerals in, including copper. So if you're, if you're, if you're doing that a lot, you, you may be feeding a lot of copper or other minerals to your pets by doing it like that. Sometimes it's hard with a lot of supplements too, because unless the supplement is fully analyzed, you may not know all the minerals in that. Like they, they're going to have their active ingredients, right? But they may not have done a full nutritional analysis for everything else that ends up in the supplement. And so you may not have awareness of, of those things. At what age would you recommend, for example, if you have a lab or a Bedlington Terrier who may be more prone towards this, at what age do you think they should start doing, you know, like liver tests or liver enzyme testing to see if there might be a problem? Well, I I recommend annual lab work testing. I, I think, you know, there probably is a zone between like two and five that might be overkill, but... I kind of feel like, you know, if you want to have a good handle that your your pet is normal, then it's a really nice thing, at least annually in, you know, forever, the whole lifespan to do your complete blood count, chemistry, your analysis. And then maybe when they get to be like over five or six or seven, start doing that thyroid test and get it checked. And that's kind of your, we call that your minimum database. Um, so annual is a good marker. I, I think when they get into their most geriatric years, we might be doing it even more often than that. And we might be doing other screening tests on top of that. But that's probably where I would start. And and again, between like 
you know, one in five, that might be overkill because a lot of them are going to coast through and never have anything, but you might catch something, you know, in those years that it's, it makes you feel better. Maybe every other year, if everything's normal, depending on how much you want to spend. <laughs> yes, that, that is, that is part of the problem too, is that just to maintain all these things and to do all these things can get very pricey. Right, right. I mean, think about when you go to the doctor, what, what do you get done every year? And, and we live a whole heck of a lot longer than our pets. We usually have lab tests done once a year. Yeah. Well, with like, for example, with my dog, my Zuzu, who's a flat coated retriever, she turned seven this year. And when I've actually had blood work done on her every six months for the last three years, because at one point she tested positive for Lyme disease. And so we need to stay yep. on top of that because if, you know, if she were to catch it again, you know, this is not something that leaves your system. Right. So I figure if we're drawing blood, we might as well do the whole shebang every six months because that way I'm going to be on top of any changes that are going to happen. So I haven't done that with, with my other dog, Clementine, the, the Clumber Spaniel, because she's only three and hasn't needed, hasn't shown, well, she's, she causes all kinds of problems, but not nutritional <laughs> ones. So... I think that a lot of it is just, you know, what what's the risk factor for your dog on different levels? And for Zuzu, it's the risk factor is for Lyme disease. So I might as well, since we're doing right. it. And besides that, I get a discount if I do a full blood panel. So, you know, there's that. Yeah. Make sure well, you do the, urine in there too. And the clumber gets her labs done when she tries to murder herself. <laughs> That's pretty much, she's ending up with it like every six months either way. Because oh, so that's the way to do it. When something happens, you, you know, you feel like, probably, hey, if you're going to you know, do the panel. <laughs> yep. Just go ahead and get enough blood and run all of it and get it checked. Take advantage of that for sure. The most recent <laughs> one was the emergency surgery because the dog swallowed a Yukon potato, a small potato oh. hole. It must have been, I don't know, the size of a large marble, I guess. Wow. It moved all the way through her intestine down to, to just about to enter her, her large intestine. And they're like, what is that thing? It didn't come up in the ultrasound. They, couldn't, they knew something was there, but they couldn't figure out what it was. So they palpated it through her large intestine and it came out of rectum. There. They still didn't know what it was. I took one look at it and went, that's a potato. You know, just- <laughs> she, saw, she thought that was food, even though it was raw, I guess. She swallowed a whole raw. It must have been, like I said, I don't know, maybe an inch and a half. Anyway, this is Clementine. Clementine this week opened up. I have a box that kind of locked. She opened, she pulled the box off the counter, opened it up, ate all of the probiotics, the entire <laughs> can of probiotics, plus all of Zuzu's um, joint medication. Oh, my. So, yeah, we had some diarrhea this week. Oh, wow. And on the eighth day, God created the coat. <laughs> but her joints felt great, right? <laughs> yes, she's very bendy. She no, it's like when she eats the butter. Oh, yeah, yeah. She she loves butter. Or jumps oh, out the window. She did not go out the window. I figured that one out. The door had been left open. But, yeah, there was one time I thought she escaped out a window. Clumbers are a little bit of an adventure. This is why clumbers are not popular. Naughty dogs. Not not with uptight people anyway. Like if you're type A, clumber is not for you. You have to have some squiggly line or it's not going to be enjoyable. So um, Dr. Gaylord, are there some good resources? I know in your case, your nutrition services are only available by veterinary referral, right? So that means bunches of people whose vets are like, just feed blah, 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 are probably not going to be super willing 
to go, yes, we would like to talk to a veterinary nutritionist. And most people don't want to fight with their vet, frankly. I mean, I could make an argument they yeah. should do, but are there some other really great resources that you can direct families to that are easy for for a dog that is, you're getting that new dog, you want to do well by them, you want to try to stave off some problems. Are there some good resources of where people can get information relatively easily that helps them begin this journey? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say to you is that anyone out there can reach out to our our website and request a consultation. So it, you don't have to ask your veterinarian first. You, you can reach out to us and say you're interested in it. And then what happens next is we reach out to your vet and basically ask them to work with us, collaborate with us for your pet's nutrition plan. And I will tell you, it, it is the very extremely rare situation a veterinarian is not going to facilitate that. I, I think that doesn't um, go over very well <laughs> with their clients if they, and actually the truth is most veterinarians are so happy and relieved to delegate the nutrition talk, you know, to us instead of having to do it themselves. They really appreciate having the support and the help on that. So I, I would tell you working with a nutritionist and most other nutritionists doing what I do, there, there isn't that many of us out there. That is true, but there's a few of us and you can find us on the American College of Veterinary Nutrition website. So if one doesn't have availability for a while, then you can try another one. Most of us, you can contact us directly and then we can tell you if we can work with you and how long it will take. So know that, you know, definitely nutrition is complicated. And I would say that there isn't a really great website that puts together all of the food options. It seems that they're swayed versus one side or the other side and what they give you information on. So if it's a website that is mostly geared towards dry kibble and canned foods, then those are going to be the, the foods that are, you're maybe directed towards. And then there's, of course, the others that are directed towards the other side of that if it's fresh diets, unprocessed diets. Um, so it's hard to find one that combines all the options in a very fair, unbiased way. I would be you know, to tell you the honest truth about that. Um, if you want to make your own diet and you don't have the resources to get a veterinary nutritionist, then I encourage you to look at Balance It website. And I, I will send my clients there and you can create a recipe that'll facilitate supplements with Balance It supplements. I've been recommending that to people constantly. I actually get quite a few people who come to me making their own food. And I'm like, I think that's a great idea. Just run it through this website and make sure yeah. that the recipe that you got does meet all of the dog's needs. Because like, these are all people who are very, very well-intentioned. They sure. deeply love their dogs and would feel terrible if there was something they were missing because they they didn't have that resource. So I, I recommend Balance It to a brother. It's a really great resource. Right. And we right now. So the other point there is that homemade diets need to be balanced with supplements that are specifically made to balance homemade diets. Um, and there really is only a handful of these what we call all in one type supplements. So they're they're actually designed to balance a homemade diet for a dog or a cat. It is not sufficient to just add pet multivitamins that you buy. You know, those are all designed with the thought in mind that you're already feeding a complete and balanced commercial dog food. So if you add a pet multivitamin that wasn't designed for a homemade diet to that, it's going to be very low in its nutritional content. It's, it's not going to have enough 
uh, to balance the diet. And usually it, when people come to me and they have a list and if um, they want me to even try to use theirs, it requires so much of that supplement that it's, it's ridiculous. It's too much volume that, and it's not cost effective. So you really got to get a supplement made to balance a homemade diet when you're, when you're doing homemade food. That's fantastic. Thank you. And we will make sure that your website and the American College of Veterinary New um, those people that do nutrition, I can't apparently say that correctly. <laughs> yeah, the nutrition people that are vets, okay? We'll put their website up there and we'll also yep. put balance it up there as well because those will be three websites that people will be able to at least get started on this. So yep. Dr. Gaylord, see I said that right, Tina. You all right? Um is <laughs> Is there anything that you would really like to say to our listeners about um, dog nutrition or especially that they may not have thought of or that you find is a, is a common question or problem or something that you want to uh, get out there? Any information in particular you'd like to get out to our audience? Gosh, there's so much to talk about, right? <laughs> well, we're happy to have you back. That's part of why, you know, we've talked to Dr. Yamka, it's why we're talking to you, is because I do think there's not a lot of consumer being able to bump up against a nutritionist to get the information. And so it's like a game of telephones, yeah. the veterinarian and the veterinarian's lovely. They're very well-intentioned, but they, they can't stay on top of it all either. Like they're exhausted and learning new things all the time. So Honestly, this is such a basically big deal. I mean, it's in that base hierarchy of needs yeah. that it it's something that people really want to learn about and kind of bump their heads trying to do it. Right, right. I I think I would I would remind everyone, I think veterinarians they they all have your best intentions in mind. You know, and and it's true that when we or even me when I went through veterinary school, um, it was we we had some nutrition exposure, but it it has gotten a whole lot better over the last you know ten plus years as well. We do have, and that's part of our mission as part of the uh, College of Veterinary Nutrition is that we want to make that better because we hear that too, and it's our jobs to be the educators and to get veterinarians educated and exposed to nutrition science. So that has gotten a lot better, but. I think a lot of veterinarians avoid the conversation still with their clients because there's so much passion and opinion and it's like religion and politics at this point that it's can be a very heated discussion but yet I do hear that you know pet owners want their veterinarians input they ultimately do want their veterinarians to approve of what they're doing so everybody needs to relax <laughs> and know that we all have the best intentions in mind and we all can work together to get there. And there's no one food form that is exactly right for all pets. You know, so we need to be open-minded in that regard and figure out what works best for that individual. And they really are individual because I will say, even with homemade diets, homemade diets don't work for every single pet that I work with. And, you know, finding the ingredients that work best. Sometimes there's a lot of trial and error involved in that too. So um, if you don't get it right the first time, you'll keep working on it and figure out what works best for that individual pet. We have a wide spectrum of foods to choose from and that we can design it, you know, individually. Right. I do have a question about now all the insect-based foods. And I'm just like, where? I mean, do my dogs eat the occasional grasshopper? Of course they do. But that's been a really intriguing 
idea and I, people ask me about it all the time and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to think about all of that. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the layers in talking or thinking about pet food sustainability and it, it is, it's a big deal because I think the, the more humans on the planet, you know, we've, we've got to figure out how to feed ourselves. And so then that trickles down to our pets, right? How are you going to feed our pets too? When, you know, do we compete food sources between humans and animals? Um, so, so it's a debate. And I think that that food source insect proteins comes out of that discussion about sustainable food sources. And so it turns out that, you know, these are larvae basically that they're growing and they're farming and they can be a source of amino acids and other things. So they could potentially serve as a protein source in diets. And that might be a very sustainable source of protein. I kind of feel weird about it myself. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I feel like then the other side of that is people tend to default towards a natural argument, like it's not a natural thing a dog would rely on to feed himself. Nutritionists will say we we only care about nutrients. We don't care about ingredients. So you break it down into what does it actually deliver on a a smaller scale, like what's the amino acids, what's the fatty acids. I think it's more complicated than that because, you know, certainly there's all those things we don't know, right, about nutrition, even though we, we like to believe we know a whole heck of a lot, which we do. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, I don't advocate really or recommend the insect-based diets myself only. I, I think I would go there if I had a highly allergic pet that had failed a lot of other diet options and were running out of novel proteins for that dog. But as far as it's, I wouldn't say it's my first choice. I tend to be very conservative too. So when something comes out, I kind of let it go out there for several years. Right. We want to see what it does. Right. And I mean, and honestly, the only way you're going to find that kind of diet is in a super processed food form, dry kibble. I don't even know if there's a canned diet like that yet, but there probably will be. But yeah, so I just don't know. I mean, I, I think there's some good, very good ideas or intentions behind those diets. And then I think about like, okay, so is that soluble fiber? Is that insoluble fiber? Like insect is, I would assume is a lot of fiber. Well, you're thinking of like a mature insect, but in actuality, these are sometimes the larvae form. So they don't have the, the, the kite, chitosin or I, I don't honestly know enough about all of the details about those diets because I, I haven't used them. I haven't used them yet. I know there's a few companies making them, you know, and I know they're out there. So for me, it would be an option I might look at for a highly allergic pet, but for a healthy pet, probably not my first choice. That's how I feel right now. And if, if something were to change my mind over time, I might reconsider that. So are there some diagnoses that dogs consistently get that are like no brainers that they should contact you to get support because you can likely really help? Wow. I think nutrition can help everything, right? <laughs> That's my, my answer to that. It's hard for me to say. I mean, there, there are definitely some diets that don't exist that we formulate homemade for. So a renal diet that's low in fat, a ultra, ultra low fat diet for, you know, 
patients that have refractory hyperlipidemia or protein losing enteropathy with lymphangiectasia, we can formulate ultra low fat diets that don't exist commercially. So those two are probably the ones that I say you, you really need a homemade diet. A super novel protein limited ingredient diet that has no, you know, added ingredients like preservatives and so forth. You need a super limited ingredient diet. Those are ones that would be, you know, our realm as well. Sometimes we have to do food testing as far as like testing basic ingredients to build a diet. I think that works great for homemade diets. So we might test one protein and one carb, and then we kind of build a diet over time. So that can be helpful for dogs with severe GI disease or if they have food allergies. There is no good test for food allergies. It's common for me to get patients that have testing that's been done none of the testing for food allergies are considered to be super accurate. And I know that probably upsets a lot of people because they've spent money on those. But as of right now, we still don't feel like they do a very good job. I have a question for you. Do you help people whose dogs have behavior problems? Can you help them with nutrition? Um, you know, there there is recently some publications looking at different strategies with diet. Uh, I, I don't think we have all the answers to that yet is the honest truth. I mean, there's been some work with different types of amino acids or with tryptophan in the diet, different protein levels, uh, use of medium chain triglycerides to influence behavior. So there's been some ideas, but I think behavior is really tough. I mean, that I think it's really, truly the realm of the behaviorist more so. And I, I mean, the diet needs to be a balanced diet appropriate for that pet. I know nutritional deficiencies sometimes are speculated on with behavior concerns, but there's a lot of question marks with nutrition there still that haven't been worked out. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. So Tina, do you have any other questions for Dr. Gaylord? No, but thank you so much for coming. And, And we would love to have you back. Like we get questions all the time, all the time. So yeah. Okay. Well, happy to do so anytime. Thank you so much. It really felt like I I learned a lot and uh, we hope our our listeners did too. And and certainly thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to spend some time with us. Wonderful. Nice to meet you guys too. Super. We'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.